and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. Hi Claire, where are you? I'm in Boston, Sebastian, where are you? I'm also in Boston. Oh my god, hi. Hi, wow, there you are, <laughs> sitting yeah. across from me. So I fly out tomorrow, so I'm really glad that we're getting to finish up part two. Indeed, we're on the last chapter of the part two of uh, The Ethical Slut, which is chapter 14, Child Rearing. Yes, it was, and I think this is a really great way to finish off part two. I, I think it's quite nice to to talk about the, the the caregivers, they are the foundation of everything. And it's important to note before we start that both Janet and Dossie have children. In fact, they have grandchildren now. They mm-hmm. have a, a huge like, repository of their own anecdotal knowledge, which does come through quite strongly in this. But we, we will have a lot of extra resources to add as we go through, because obviously this was last published. When was this last published? Mm. When was the third edition published? 2017. Thank you, yes. So there's been a couple of years of extra stuff to add, and I think one of the things that, um, that has been missed out of this is, like, some some things have been missed out of this that I'm, like, excited to go over. Cool. I think it's, I, I liked it as a chapter. I, I think it's a really good thing to have in there and to talk about independently. And it's a really nice way to talk about the other benefits and interesting aspects of polyamory and polyamorous families besides the sex and intimacy aspect which is what we've talked about a lot like we've had the last few chapters have really dived into flirting and dating and sex and intimacy and this is sort of a little bit more holistic and just as important as those things yeah definitely um so let's go straight into it they begin by talking about representation they're they're kind of acknowledging that we have moved on a lot from the kind of representation of families in the media and i did a little bit of like digging to see if I could find like a good anthology of of what that looks like Uh, I did find a couple of nice accessible articles some of them are behind a paywall unfortunately Uh, but we have seen like a huge uh, diversification in the way that families are portrayed in the media obviously if you go back to like the 50s it was all like two parent heteronormative nuclear families with a dog and a picket fence I think they call out here (laughs) I mean, they, they talk about Leave It to Beaver and Ozzy and Harriet. Have you watched either of those? I don't know what that is. I have not watched either of those. Okay. I did not watch TV so as a kid. We we missed that. I also didn't watch TV as a kid. But um, in the 60s, we began to see single parents household, single parent households. So the Andy Griffith show, another one I haven't seen, but apparently was like the debut of a single parent household. In the 70s, we see a proliferation of like different races beginning to be um like taking the forefront whereas before i've been a very whitewashed view of what a family is and very suburban view of what a family is and kind of now we do see portrayals of families in urban settings uh peri-urban settings some of them focus on extended families i was thinking about modern family for example mm, i haven't seen modern family either. modern family really has i mean it has a the full like grandfather all the way down to like grand granddaughters and stuff it's um and it's also got a mixed race couple in there and a gay couple on the surface it looks very forward thinking i do think that it still falls into some of like the sort of monoculture traps um and Mm. some of like the the patriarchal traps like for example the breadwinners are men even the homosexual couple fall into like a 
you know, gendered roles, weirdly. But um, anyway, one of the things that I would say to add to this, though, is that even though our representations have come on, we still, I don't know a single way, like, I don't know a single family I could point to in the media and be like, ah, a healthy, multi-partner family. Yeah, I can't think of any. I was trying to think about one, even in TV. I know one of the early, early chapters, we tried to think about, like, just polyamorous relationships that are out in the media. It's like our first homework. Yeah. And we've really even struggled to come up with a lot of those and definitely no families that I can think of. Yeah, none that, none that are around children. I'm sure there are. Maybe people hear this and they can think of one they can send it to us. But before we move off of the subject of representation, I do want to say that multi-parent households do not necessarily denote polyamory. So all the way through this they, this chapter, they talk about basically like, well, they don't use the term multi-parent household, but basically that's what they're talking about, households that have more than two parents but there are other situations in which that might happen so the one that is most easily like to kind of legally define is when you have a same-sex vulva vulva relationship and a sperm donor who doesn't turn down their rights to to know the child so they have like a a platonic co-parenting father and there's also platonic parenting options so a lot of what we're going to be talking about can be applied to them as well it's not all about polyamory but in this book it is so yeah, the other thing they talk about in the sort of introduction to this is about uh, if you look in the, the media or some things, and I did a little bit of reading and found some really mixed reviews from people who've grown up in polyamorous settings or news articles about this, about poly families, um, that that might be bad for children or it might be good for children or it might be, a, you know, there could be lots of different ways of looking at it. It can be more supportive for kids versus it can cause lots of problems for them in turmoil and they won't cope well. And what they say here is kids take to these relationships quite readily. Now, that's their opinion, and mm-hmm. there's probably a lot of research on this. But um, they also point out children have grown up in villages and tribes for most of human history. And thinking back historically, kids for a long time grew up in sort of communal settings. It's only relatively recent that the real nuclear small family is is the sort of archetype of what a family is. I think it's important to say that it's the archetype, but it's also not necessarily as prevalent in real life as the media would have you believe. Um, And it's not the, and it's that specific to, I think, the Western world and the US. Yeah, I do have some stuff to say about the, they use the word tribe a lot in in the first part of this chapter, but um, I don't think they really thought through the implications of that. I don't think it's really good for these two American white women to be talking about tribes and villages and like, in it's it, yeah it it sits ill with me there has been a lot of research that i found that was about children and health indicators um specifically in the under fives uh in sub-saharan african context which is obviously where i've lived for a lot of my dating life um and like there there is well documented multi-partner households there i don't think that person would be like oh the tribe raises them like a tribe is a is like your like it, it can mean something very specific depending on where you are in the world but like it definitely doesn't just mean oh everyone that's around me all the time and by the way the studies i found in the sub-saharan african context found no indicators that polygyny would have like any evidence of negative effects on the race the health indicators of children there there was one study in tanzania that kind of kind of said yes the people that are raised in multi-parent households but i guess they don't use that term they use polygyny they they are have like worse health indicators but then in a rebuttal 
that paper was like, well, that's because the people that practice polygyny are in economically vulnerable groups, and that is the predictor. So that's all off book, but I think it does come back to this part that I highlighted in the book, where it says, surrounded by loving adults with plenty of time on their hands, children were happier, more docile, and less fragmented. Did you highlight that bit as well? No, not that specifically. Okay. Though I like that sentiment. I do. I guess my takeaway from it is when you're talking about it, it's it's not a clear-cut issue. Like a lot of the articles that I looked up were very black and white. It was it's really it's actually it's either really good or really bad. A lot of it was was, you know, editorials and people's personal experiences and you can get one or the other. You can anecdote your way into anything right. though, but I think that you'd be hard-pressed to find like an academically rigorous article that was like, yes, 100%. Right. And and my takeaway from all of this and referencing other cultures and different times and whatever is that there are a lot of different ways to structure a family all over the world. And people have structured families differently for a long time. And it's a lot more, with, as with most of the things we talk about, about, how you practice that and how you put that into practice than just the the structure itself. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I, I will also say that kind of like instinctively, I think that like if you've got more people around somebody, okay. you have more resources. Like that's just like the way that I would think about anybody. I'm not even just talking about children like, any situation where you've got more people together, you have more resources. And one of the ways that this came out was, I mean, they, they talk a little bit here about single parent ethical slut is what they call it. But basically, if you're a single parent and you're trying to have multiple other people in your life. And that made me think about how grossly over-moralized the single mother narrative is in like a lot of the stuff I read. When actually we're talking about there is like, you have the resources of a single person. And that's obviously might might limit you in ways where if you had the resources of two, three, four, five, seven, a hundred a million people, like you're gonna have more time, more potentially like more money, more energy. <laughs> Children could be exhausting, so like more energy and also like more role models, like more variation of like the people that are around you that might be able to inspire you and help you and give you advice. And I I would also add in terms of and everything we've talked about, polyamory is about open and clear communication and developing maybe even more emotional awareness and emotional literacy and modeling that for children in a culture where that's not always the case. Personally, I can see that there would be a benefit of that of a kid growing up in this environment that is promoting active engagement and, and emotional awareness yeah, and, and they, they they go into that like in a lot of ways. I think throughout this chapter, yeah. I think that's a big. T- so to kind of conclude the beginning part of this, there's no right or wrong about whether multi partner households is better or worse. Um, there was a there was there was this part about roles, which I think was really important. Where that there is a mono, monogamy centrist thinking, where you either have to be the love of my life and the father of my children. Let's say, speaking as a as a person with a vulva who thinks of himself as a woman. Right, you have to be the same, that has to be the same role. Once you decouple that, which I think is not an explicitly polyamorous way of thinking, it's just like realistic, right? There are plenty of healthy co-parenting relationships that are between people that have monogamous, you know, partners. Um, And it made me think about the way that as a child you think about roles in the life. And I think it's just very important to, to be clear on how you define them before you go in and they're going to talk more on that but before you go into them um are you like the daddy or are you a donor for this kid like what where do you stand on that i do i call do do i as a child call daddy's girlfriend auntie 
there is like be be clear with that I think was one of the takeaways from the very very beginning and you also spoke a little bit about change and learning to to roll with people coming in and out of the household in a not like day-to-day but like you know relationships change and Mm -hmm. as you said as you've just said you can model that by having like honest frank communication about that like okay so this person is not going to be here as often because we have changed our relationship and like that's gonna hurt it's gonna be hard but then that kid becomes more resilient and in my research again it it though there seems to be like resiliency is a combination of change and consistency being the exact right measurement of someone's life but being resilient is a good indicator of future good health good mental health so that's all i have to say on the beginning part did you have anything else to say before we we go into the specifics no let's let's hit the next section which is sex education for kids and i guess i mean my my first thought on this is sort of I, i don't see that much of a difference in my thinking about sex education from a monogamous standpoint versus from a polyamorous standpoint because it's it's really about you know providing relevant age-appropriate information to children as they're growing and developing it might be that because you're in this they have exposure to more relationships they might start to have more questions or different questions i mean they have a line there sex education is an issue for all parents um, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're a single parent a standard nuclear family type of parent or multi-parent multi-parent household sex education is something that you should be i think pretty pretty aware of what your child is receiving um i will say that the the line that stuck out to me is before that when it's like you know education is not abuse children need enough information to make sense out of what adults are doing so they can grow up in their own healthy understanding of sexuality and it's such a innate part of a person you know their their body being aware of their body but it is so informed by the culture in which you're in. I just, yeah, I've struggled with it. I wanted there to be like a lot more meat to this section. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, for example, they talk about culture here and they say like that some, cult, well, they say our culture, which I assume is American culture, is deeply divided about the entire subject of sex information and children. And they, the, the authors then start talking about like how abstinence only sex education is not super helpful and they start talking about online pornography and stuff but i think more of a point could be made about the way that culture plays in how people receive sex education resources like how do you ask those questions and depending on how you want to have your kids you as a parent need to make that decision but the cult the culture in is already going to be making part of those decisions for you right and another big consideration i think in that is not just what you teach your kids and how you teach it, but also then thinking about how what you teach them and then teaching them what's appropriate in the, in the context of the culture they're growing up in. So you may be very open-minded and liberal and sexually free and live in the Bible Belt. So let's use that as an example. And so you might want your kid to learn more, but then you also need them to be aware that in the context of where they're growing up, some of that information is not information that everybody's going to have or going to respond to differently and that being aware of that is a reality of living in that area yeah i mean they they within that they talk about countries in europe and i'm european at least until brexit goes through (laughs) (laughs) i'm european and we had i think maybe this is kind of a good i've never really asked you like what was your sex education like as a child i don't i don't really 
I don't really have a clear idea of what sex education looks like in, in the US. I think, speaking at, from a global standpoint, people think very badly about the sex education that's available in the USA. I think basically we just kind of assume that it's just... I mean, you mentioned Bible Belt, but basically, like, that's what I, that's what I would assume. Like, there's no sex education, and anything that is given is, like, ad hoc. Is that what was your experience? I guess with your sex education. I'm trying to remember, it's a long time ago now. I think it varies a lot depending on where you are, and from what I've talked to other people and stuff. There's a wide range of the type of sexual education people get. Everything from like basically abstinence only education to very vague education about sex and sexual health. What I remember from mine is I remember some vague discussions. I don't remember ever doing like a like a sexual health or like a condom demonstration or anything like that. And I remember it being like a touchy subject, and people were able to opt out of it. Like, not ever, you didn't have to participate in those classes or your parents could opt you out. And you feel like that is a, a normal experience in the USA? Probably, I would guess. I mean, I, I definitely think I got some amount. And I lived in a relatively conservative area, and we, we did get, like, sexual education. It wasn't just abstinence only. But I don't think it was a lot more than that. Um, okay, so what they say in the book is, my experience in Europe, sex education in schools for children of all ages is very routine. You would have it definitely before the age of 12, like, before menstruation. Um, and it is going to be including demonstrations of like different types of contraception. It's going to be talking about, um, you know, what, what the anatomy of your body looks like on the inside and what the names for that stuff is. Uh, and it's also going to probably, I mean, not for me because I was in a, a relig- more religious school, but I don't want that to sound like the religious schools here are very different kettle of fish from religious schools that are, just have an affinity with the church or something in in, the, in Europe. But it will also include information on ways to make sex pleasurable. So like that the, that was standard. It didn't seem strange. It was like very confident asking questions in those classes. Yes, obviously it was a little bit funny because the teachers had penis. But like <laughs> overall, like it was... Like, so even what I'm saying is even between our standpoints, there seems to be like a huge amount of cultural difference. Yeah, there's a huge divide. And I mean, my my experience is skewed because my mother is is a midwife. She's a healthcare professional who's worked in that scope and was very open with us. And that's definitely not a, you know, true across all. So part of it comes back to like... Again, it comes back to the parenting, right? It comes back to the the caregiver. And I think that basically the takeaway of this section is if you want to be a sex, if you want to raise sex positive, confident children who are able to navigate things like consent, understand their intuition, they're going to be able to point to the part of their body that, that feels itchy or weird or is like painful or is growing hair and be able to correctly name it. If that's what you want for your kids, and it's completely up to you what you want for your children. There are now resources available right the way from, like, day dot. So there is, like, children's books called Some Secrets Should Never Be Kept, which is encouraging you to talk to your parents about, like, maybe something like abuse or that could be happening if that's something you're worried about. Or this is my vulva, again, made for kids. And it's about, like, this is my eyes, these are my ears, my vulva, this is my toes. Like, mm-hmm. it's part of being able to just name your body. And I'm going to link uh, an Instagram which I follow, which I absolutely love, which is Sex Positive Families. They have loads of resources. And I'm also going to link a Healthline um, like live stream platform that focuses on queering uh, public sex education and curriculums. Because I think that even even in a very like liberal European standpoint, we don't necessarily get as much information about queer sex 
as would be helpful potentially. And basically, if you're a parent, don't leave it up to the internet, schools or churches, because then you're not really getting to have as much of an input as I'd imagine you'd like into the the, the spawn that you have made and brought into the world. Yeah. <laughs> There's another line in here. Um, when we try to keep sex secret from our kids. They're aware that something is going on. They just don't know what. Like Kids are very smart. They figure things out. They know there's something up. And the next line, if we leave them to get their sex information from equally ill-informed kids or from online pornography, we consign them to the jungle, which is really true. Kids will figure it out. So let's talk about what to share and not, which is the next section. And I think this kind of comes back to you were talking about you might be wanting to share quite a lot with your children, but you might be living in a culture that's maybe more conservative or more liberal um, and doesn't necessarily line up with what you want. So for me, the first thing I thought about is raising children um, as a as a migrant, because that's my background. Basically, you might be living in a new in like your your subculture. Like, let, let's say you and I went, went back to Malawi, which is where we met. And we wanted to raise our kids there and we would have like very i would imagine sex positive ideas about like how we want to be able to do that but then they would go and like be like come off as like precocious uh, mm-hmm. rude embarrassing um and you can't really control what your children are going to say not just about sex but also about like the people that are in their house so it's very important to think about what you're going to be sharing with them because you you then they, they're going to go and potentially share that with someone else so right. What, what was your takeaway from this relatively short, short section? I think my takeaway was was kind of what you're saying. Just you have to be careful with what you're sharing with the kids. But even more so, you need to be, I mean, I, I said it already, like you have to be explaining to them sort of probably some more intricacies about sex, about relationships, about the cultural ramifications. Kids are smart. Kids figure things out. They They see things. They notice things. They can make connections. And they may not know exactly what those connections mean, but they can, they notice patterns. They notice if you have, you know, Uncle Jim who comes over to the house all the time and also kisses mommy or whatever else, you know, they'll notice that. They'll pick it up and without any other information, they're going to share that, not think it's a big deal. So teaching them what might be problematic to share. But for me, I think that would also maybe be related to the age of the child. Right. Right. Like it might be hard to explain that to like a five-year-old but maybe like your 15 year old son is going to be able to be like okay got it like i don't you know fine (laughs) well and they point out there's another thing which is in certain countries certain behaviors can be justification for legally removing children from your custody whether that's same-sex relationships or other relationship styles or multi-parent styles or things where it would be just considered um adultery or something Mm mm-hmm those could all, you know, depending on your your country yeah. or wherever, could be legal justifications. So you or, kind of want to protect yourself and your kids from mm-hmm. from giving away enough to a nosy neighbor that they would phone child services. Is that is that the idea? Yeah. yeah. I, I do want to say that I think there are like a growing like kind of understanding of like legal protections. So we've done we've 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 touched on this before i think about like how you can protect yourself from that in a legal way having a co-parenting agreement drawn up with with all all parents involved um it's not necessarily legally binding but it's it might be something to like help or just uh if you can uh renegotiate your morality clause in whatever contract you have um but yes there, there there will be some times where that can be like a genuine and real risk especially if Especially, I imagine, with, like, maybe during divorces or separations. Mm-hmm. That might be something, like, you know, a, a really, like, yeah. upset parent 
can come after the other parent and custody battle ensues. It's just not nice for kids. Then they move on to, okay, so that, that's what you're going to be sharing with your children, but what, what do they see? So again, a really short section. It's a good idea to model physical and verbal affection for children. So they learn to be affectionate from adults. I think the difference between affection and sex when it comes to like an action is usually nudity. So like, let's say you're, you know, lovingly kissing your partner. That means, I don't know, I feel, feel like that comes across in one way. If both people are clothed um, and if both people are naked, it comes across another way. And I like that they, they talk a little bit about nudity here. I don't know that this, again, this, a lot of this stuff is not just parenting advice for polyamorous relationships and different families have different expectations of physical affection. You know, some aren't very physically affectionate, either in front of kids or with each other um, out in public. Some may just hold hands. You know, there's, there's a lot of that. And I think probably, I mean, in my mind, like the line of what is appropriate in front of your children would probably be the same line as what's appropriate as you're walking around out in public. I'm not sure because like... Like you wouldn't sit necessarily... There's a line like you kiss your partner. Sure. You don't have a steamy makeout session. No, yes, yes. I right? okay. I'm not advocating that, but what I'm talking about here is this gray that what they call the gray area of nudity. Um, and again, this is culturally informed. Most of the cultures I've lived in, having a level of nudity is like not particularly strange. Like that's how your body is. You right. put on clothes because you're cold. I mean, for example, in Scandinavia, I've lived in Scandinavia. You go to the sauna as a family. You're all naked. Like that's what you. I've I've been to saunas, <laughs> and there've been kids there, and everyone's just naked, and it it obviously doesn't feel sexual or inappropriate. Otherwise, I would have <laughs> felt inappropriate. Yeah. I don't I don't. It's hard to kind of like put my my finger on it. Whereas then I bring like even just like the you know what my pajamas look like here might be considered a bit like not mm-hmm. okay for kids. I mean, they talk about here ages and level of sophistication and perceptions of existing relationships. That's Those are the things that they talk about in variables. They don't talk about culture in this section. And I think it's all culture. <laughs> Nudity and sex and affection. Those are cultural scripts. Right. And, um, and, and family scripts. Some families are comfortable just being nude around the house and that's just a, we're home together, it doesn't matter. And other families don't do that. And I agree with you, the line of what's affection and what's sexual, even if you're nude, you know, there, it's a gray area, and I think you have to, in the context of all of those things, you know what's... Mm. I think in the context of your culture and your family and all of those things. So again, there's no hard and fast rule. Yeah. Apart from I, this part, which I've underlined, if the child expresses discomfort about your friend's nudity or your nudity, then their desires should be respected. I, I think that's... I, I, I highlighted that their desires should be respected. Yeah. Um. And they added, it goes without saying that no child should be required to be nude in front of other people. Which I guess leads into what should they do, um, as in what should children do. And it's super, super short because, again, it says it's illegal and immoral to allow your children to engage in any form of social behaviour with any adult or to allow your partners to be sexual seductive with your kids. Obviously, that is not a poly slash mono thing. That is a legal and ethical thing. Um, and then they kind of launch into intuition and boundaries. Well, I think what they're bringing up here too is like, especially as kids go through those developmental periods into their teens and start to be hormonal and start to be experiencing, 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 as kids start to be experiencing sexuality and hormones and those changes, 
And then being around more people, potentially. Especially people who are not their parents, right? Because cultural scripts are going to, depending on how they've grown up and people who come in and out. I guess this is a question, right? Why are the cultural scripts different for biological parents of a child versus, like, relational parents, if that makes sense? I think, I don't necessarily think, I think it's more a longevity. In my eyes, it's a, your biological parents have been, you've, you've grown up with them and that builds a certain type of relationship. Not necessarily. Potentially. Potentially. Versus if you have relationships that are coming in and out, you have a very different relationship with somebody who is suddenly in your life when you're 13 or 14 and is a new person in your life. Okay, but here's what I'm thinking. The, the very beginning of the chapter, they're talking about decoupling. The idea that what is one role for me is therefore the role for my children. Right? Like, right at the very beginning, they're saying, just because you love someone doesn't mean they necessarily have to be the father of your children. Right? The kind of coming from a polyamorous standpoint that's that's almost an easy thing for me to think about roles that are, that someone plays in your life really don't have a bearing on my life for example and if I was a child it'd be the same I would form an independent connection as a child to the metamor of my father or whatever right if you're able to decouple as they ask you to do here the idea that um, an, an adult's lover should be the child's parent though those are different roles then it becomes a bit harder to fall back on, like, culturally, I guess, intuitive. Ding, ding, quote, quote, quote. Because we haven't had air quotes in a while. Yeah, I know, right? It, it becomes really difficult to fall back on these ding, ding, intuitive cultural scripts about what that combined role should look like. And I just feel like if we're going to, to de- be decoupling these these ideas that the role, the role that you serve in my life, therefore, is linked to a role you'll, you'll share in my children's life, then you also have to understand that the scripts that, that previously existed for that relationship don't apply anymore. And we need to be able to recreate those in our own image. And the next section is now answering their questions, which I think starts to tie together these. So kids have questions about sex and relationships. You're never going to get around that. They're either going to ask you or they're going to ask the internet. We, we hope it won't be the internet. The internet is full of bad answers terrible answers um they give some examples about what those might be and obviously Mm. it will depend if they're older children or if they are younger children uh but it is your job as a parent to provide honest heartfelt responses to those questions yeah and i don't think any i have no nothing to add to that i think that is like that's kind of the job that you have by choosing to raise children yeah Um, is is yeah i agree with that that's the one thing i highlighted in this section is you owe your kids honest heartfelt responses to their questions yeah but i think there is some ways to navigate how you begin to have those discussions first of all you might feel a little bit embarrassed as the person that has to answer those questions as the parent children might ask really embarrassing questions at really inopportune moments because they're children and they are curious and you might feel some some feelings uh, you owe it to them to kind of reassure them that those are your emotions they are not the responsibility of the child to make you feel better the child didn't do anything wrong by asking but maybe it's things like we are going to talk about that later because at the moment mummy feels very uh awkward because she hasn't had that conversation with daddy before is that okay <laughs> i imagine <laughs> Good modeling of such a situation. Right, exactly. Like you are, you might feel awkward or like ambivalent or a bit ashamed or like confused, and you might want to go away and like 
take a second to to collect yourself but it's not not something that the child should ever like adopt as like their own problem and the second thing that they point out here is if you are going to be giving them information you need to kind of test their willingness to receive that information you need to ask them instead of just going off on a monologue giving them so much information that it's like confusing and like overwhelms a child which is sort of the antithesis of not giving them enough information you might want to ask them like do you want to know more about whatever the topic is so do you want to know more about how pregnancy works do you want to know more about mummy's new boyfriend yeah i think them mentioning and talking about like involving the kids and making sure they feel comfortable with what you're sharing them is really important and it helps to model setting good boundaries and clear communication with the kids. But in all these examples that we're talking about, it's still very much the direct parent-child relationship between the biological parent and their child. At least that's well, how we, they presented we it. So. We so. That's how it seems to come across as really specific, a direct parent-child relationship. And that's not the only adult relationship that those kids might have, which brings them into the next section or brings me into talking about the next section they talk about, which is your lover's kids and how you approach conversations and interacting with the children of your partners. Yeah. And Um, I mean, this could be still relevant to monogamous people, but I think this is definitely written from a situation of like you, you're, you're coming into a household that's already uh, sort of set up, whether that has one or two parents or more, and there are children in that setup and this is something that we both have had a little bit of experience with um, and obviously something that that Janet and Darcy have as well. So one thing I think that's important thing about this too is even if you're dating monogamously you may interact with the partner's kids so some of these skills are still relevant but it's a different situation where there's a where you're joining a family structure or starting to interact with that family structure Mm. as another partner that's outside of the cultural narratives and there's also I guess what I before we came into this, I said this is you know a lot about the parental relationship with the kids in the previous section. Talking about your lover's kids, I think this is more new interactions versus if it was an established triad, for example, that's raised the kids. That's also a different relationship. Yeah. So, so th- this is about how you begin to make decisions about what you're going to tell the kids about the relationship that you have with your lover, um, and what of those decisions are conventional for what they're already experiencing. So this is going to look very different if you're, if you are joining a triad because they probably have already had discussions about ethical non-monogamy and had discussions about alternate relational choices versus if you are the first you know, serious partner of someone who's newly consensually non-monogamous, these are going to be really different types of discussions. It also might depend on the age of the children. If, if you were joining yeah. a couple or, or, or uh, involved with a, a member of a partnership and they had a five-year-old and a 15-year-old, your interaction with that, those two children might be different and you would have to navigate each of those based on those considerations and it will also be based on you i mean like they, they say in here uh, single people with no previous connection to children may find themselves in a position of needing to learn how to deal with children and i was like oh my god it's me <laughs> like it is through my my lover's children that i've had like the most interaction with with children at all um and it was like a steep learning curve for me I don't know how many people that that might be their very first interaction with parental esque thing. I mean, they they talk in here about you learn your parenting skills maybe potentially through this. 
right. through yeah. this child, which might not might not be particularly fair on the on the kid, unfortunately. But hopefully, because of this book, you'll do a good job. I mean, one example they gave like that was somebody who learned how to parent through their partner's kids, and then were able to use those skills when they had their own child. But I I think a lot of this again, it's it's different situationally. Um, and depending on your role and the age of the children and other considerations, if you enter a situation where there are children, that has to be a discussion with the parents. 100%. You and need the... to set up what your role is going to look like between you before you get introduced to the, to the child. Right. And you need to be clear about what what they're going to know about you, what your role is in their life or the expectations. Yeah. or and or all the stuff that, that's already been talked about in the, in the chapter about what they're allowed to see, what you're allowed to share, that needs to be done prior to meeting the kid think that that's that's a big takeaway from here yeah i I think it's all going to be unique i mean one other thing that occurs to me is you know just because you're joining a relationship or even if you've been in a relationship with somebody who has children for some amount of time that doesn't make you a parent it's what we talked about right in the beginning it's decoupling those relationships that just because you're a, a, a romantic partner of somebody's parent doesn't by default also make you the parent um they also talk about here about expressing needs so and this i think is relevant for everybody like if, if you're especially if you're new to being around children and you don't want to become a parental figure for this child speaking very clearly about those needs is actually quite helpful because then you obviously should already be having these discussions with your partner before you meet their child but um, it's also good modeling behavior for the children to see well i need a half an hour break now and I need to be quiet for half an hour, so I'm going to go in the other room. Or I can't be solely responsible for a child. I don't feel comfortable doing that. And then they also talk a bit about, like, if, they, if this goes wrong and the kid doesn't like you, which I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of emotional people involved. Like, you're not always going to necessarily get on with the child of your lover. Again, because there's nothing innate just because you are romantically involved with someone that has children and wanting to have children. Um... They give some examples here of what that, why that might be from the child's point of view. They might be angry with you. They might see you as replacing a parent after death or divorce or whatever. Um, you might not like the child for various reasons, maybe um, you know based on your own history or your own past. Um, and they say that like it doesn't matter really what the reason is because you are an adult and they are a child and it's your responsibility to find a, a, a resolution, even if it takes a lot of time and patience. And they have a nice anecdote here about Janet's relationship with her spouse, who they call E. Yes, so this seems to be a spouse, E, who is not the biological parent of her young adult son. And who, basically, the spouse, E, and her son didn't really get along. There was a lot of tension with them in the house. And they just really struggled to find common ground, it sounds like. But that at some point, they went to visit Janet's mother. And they decided they both needed to escape from the domestic situation and went into the backyard and had a beer. And that sort of triggered for them this understanding where he said he could see my son the way I see him as a socially awkward young man, not always too aware of the physical realities around him, but with a huge heart and a lot to give. And that after that, they got on much better and they had a much better relationship. And I was going to say, I think my takeaway from all of this is that when you enter somebody's life in a partnership and they already have children, you still have to build a relationship with that kid. You may love their mom or dad or parents, and you may want to care about them and be a positive person, but you don't have a relationship with them yet. Those parents have been with them since birth or forever, how long, whatever the situation is, and you still have to build a relationship 
you have to navigate that through your own boundaries and needs, through the kids' boundaries and needs, and then through the parents' expectations of what they want yeah. for I their kid in their role of parent and protecting their kid in the way that they see fit. fit. I think though it is also they don't say this in here, but it's also completely fine if you're uh, if you're dating somebody to say I don't really want to be involved. I don't want to. I don't want to take that on, or not yet, or ever. It's completely okay to not want to have children and to not want to have anything to do with children in your life. It's also okay for somebody who has a kid that you're dating to then be like, okay, well we're kind of a parcel package. Like I'm a dad. That's part of the person I am. I really need you to be on board with that, otherwise we can't date. But it is okay to say like, I don't want to have a relationship with your child just because I'm dating you. That may limit the interactions that you can have with that person. Like when I was dating somebody who had a child, didn't have a lot of free time and it just ended up making sense that he would spend it with me and his child. Not because I particularly wanted to be a parental figure, but just because he had very real time constraints. But it's it's completely okay if, if you're a woman out there especially, I think we get like, we get like such a hard time if we say we don't wanna have kids. It's almost an expectation that there is like an innate desire to rear children, especially amongst women. And I just wanna say, even though that Janet and Dossie don't talk about it here, it's okay if you also don't want to rear children. The point is you have to be clear and intentional about it when you're meeting someone who already has babies. Definitely. And with that, sums it up. Yeah, end of the chapter, but they do have this fun vignette, and it's her last vignette, story, whatever we're calling this now. Vignette. We've stuck with vignette pretty have well. We, I just feel like it sounds like an instrument or a source. <laughs> well, I think we make that joke every time. I know, it but it's still old. funny. Oh, wait, before we leave, I should say, both of us would encourage you to go to Multiamory Podcast. They published a... Um, uh, an episode last year on polyamory family and children with Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, who was um, the author of one of our bonus episode sort of focal points. So we'll be putting that in the show notes. And now we'll go to the, the vignette, round off the chapter. I thought it was a nice one, which was called Poly Pioneers, Marston, Marston, and Byrne. And some of you might recognize those names. Marston, William Moulton Marston, in fact, is responsible for Wonder Woman. Not solely. No, No. but he's, I mean, he's the, he drew the comics, I guess, but they're actually, so this is a, this is in the 1940s and they were an established and out polyamorous relationship in the 1930s, 1940s, 1920s. I mean, he, he, okay. So this comic book came out originally in 1941. It's definitely World War II era comic. Like Wonder Woman originally like was fighting, fighting for, yeah. For the Allies against the Axis powers in World War Two, so it's like really back then. But yeah, they were they were out and proud and poly and fucking kinky. Apparently, apparently, it's I didn't really know this because I've never seen the original Wonder Woman. But there's a strong kink component, which I guess you could get a little bit from her lasso of truth. <laughs> yeah, but also apparently themes of dominance and submission. And I actually did some research on this, and William Marston also very smart man. He also. Um, branded this this idea that through dominance and submission we can achieve like a better world so he in 1928 he published an uh, 1928 that was back when you couldn't even like show your ankle and he published this this paper called the emotions of normal people in which he said that uh everyone has like this dominant and submissive side as well as 
compliance and inducement. And it is through like these four elements of, of people's personalities, which are informed by various things, that, that you can experiment with creating a better world. And that's how BDSM sort of plays into his ethics, which is super interesting. I'll link to that because we don't have time to go into it here. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were something. I didn't realize. Yeah. So just for a little summary of them, because we sort of skipped past, but it was Dr. Marston and his wife, Elizabeth, um, and then they were in a triad with Olive Dotsie Byrne, who was his former research assistant. According to this, she took the responsibility for raising their four children, two from each woman. But they had a long, a long relationship. And after he died, Dotsie and Sadie lived together happily for the rest of their lives. Apparently, Wonder Woman was based largely on Dotsie in terms of her character and personality and some of the attributes. And I just think that's really cool. And in the way that she looked. Yeah. I think it was character driven. I think it was like she, she was a very strikingly tall beautiful woman and she also had all these huge cuffed jewelry mm-hmm. and that became like wonder woman's uh armband <laughs> wristband i don't know what you call that bracelet that's yeah. what you call <laughs> bracelets armbands <laughs> a long day yeah. um yeah so i think that this is a nice way to end up part two because it's like clearly in the 1920s this was this was not only happening but also like well documented and produced for well adjusted children and wonder woman as like a an imaginary fifth, fifth child fifth kink baby yeah um so what did you think of part two we're done i know we're, we'll be okay. taking a break before we come out with part three uh look out for bonus episodes and merry christmas yeah merry christmas or happy holidays. Yeah, um, or Kwanzaa. Um, Kwanzaa. I don't actually know what Kwanzaa is. Oh, no, uh, I do. Um, Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yeah, what other ones are there? If you're in the U.S., you've probably celebrated Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving. Yes, yeah, uh, all, all the holidays, and um, we can't wait to get into part three, which will be called Navigating Challenges. <laughs> You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to pollypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books. <laughs>